Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It wasn't long after reports of a novel coronavirus began to roll in that another public health crisis started to emerge. The World Health Organization warns a wide-ranging post-COVID-19 crisis is coming. Hundreds of thousands of Americans are so-called COVID long haulers, some battling crippling symptoms well after their diagnosis. I originally caught COVID back in March, uh, March the 19th, my symptoms started. I think my illness technically was mild. I had awful fever and a lot of sweat, a lot of chest tightness and pain. In November 2020, we spoke to Tom State, a 32-year-old entrepreneur and marathon runner who had caught COVID-19 early in the pandemic. It took about three weeks before I was sort of able to reasonably go out and about and, uh, you know, go shopping and do, do that sort of stuff. I almost got to the point at the end of April where I felt fairly normal. At the beginning of May, some of the original symptoms that I had during the acute phase came back and then also a whole load of new symptoms came along. All sorts of things that didn't happen the first time around. I had uh, gastrointestinal problems. I had severe chest pain that was worse and different to the first time. I had a lot of confusion and difficulty with sort of cognition. I had these strange spasms in my throat that started. It felt as though my entire body had been kind of hijacked by a new phase of of the illness that was distinctly similar to the the first one, but kind of different in, in form, if you like. You've no doubt heard stories like Tom's before. There are countless people around the world who say they're suffering from long COVID. That's a collection of symptoms and complications that's been ill-defined and poorly understood. It's been nearly three years since the pandemic started. Are scientists any closer to discovering what causes the condition? And what, if anything, can they do about it? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. This week, the long march to get a handle on long COVID. We'll visit Britain's first long COVID clinic to find out what could be causing the condition and how the emerging knowledge could point the way towards potential future treatments. Perhaps one of the only good things about long COVID has been the innovation we've achieved um, in developing new services to support individuals. Plus, could the hunt for solutions to this medical mystery help with other chronic conditions too?
To help me understand all of this, I'm joined by Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor. Natasha, before we get into the theories for the mechanisms that cause it and um, you know how to treat long COVID, just give me a bit of a background explanation. What is it? Well, long COVID is actually a term that's been created by patients who've suffered from long COVID. Different countries vary in how they define it. The WHO says three months after your COVID case, if you've got these symptoms, then you have long COVID. Uh, The UK says something a bit different. It says four to 12 weeks. So the terminology is, I would say, a little bit in flux. But the symptoms also are hugely varied. Um, Most commonly, people talk about extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, loss of smell, aching muscles. But actually, over 200 symptoms have been listed, you know, including dizziness, allergic reactions. And because COVID can infect many different parts of your body and cause lasting damage, some people are living with long-term heart or lung problems that may fall in within the definition of long COVID. Okay, well, given that we're still in the early process of that definitional phase, but scientists and doctors are interested in understanding it, what do they know about its prevalence? I mean, how prevalent is long COVID? Who's likely to get it? So the prevalence depends on how you define it. One big meta-analysis found 6.2% of people who'd had COVID-19 in the first two years of the pandemic experienced at least one of the three main groups of symptoms three months later. And of those patients, 15% were still affected a year later. So it's not that common. After a year, that's about 1% of all patients. But if you were hospitalised for COVID, you would have had a really high chance of getting long COVID. One study found that only one in three people were fully recovered a year after leaving hospital. And, you know, what's going on there is that when you've been hospitalised with a very serious condition, particularly if you've been in intensive care, it's actually pretty typical that you're going to have a prolonged illness after you leave the hospital. Whether you have been hospitalised with COVID or anything else, that's the sort of nature of intensive care and the experience that patients have afterwards. Now, later in the show, we'll dig into some of the theories for what could be causing long COVID. First, though, we heard earlier from Tom State, the entrepreneur and marathon runner who developed long COVID. Natasha, you interviewed him for Babbage two years ago and you caught up with him again recently. How's he doing? I did. So Tom says he's had a tough few years, but he definitely seems to be on the road to recovery. My symptoms have vastly improved from what they were two years ago when we spoke, which um, you know I'm really grateful for the level of recovery that I've been able to make. And you know I'm lucky I've been able to go back to working full time and kind of uh, getting on with life. But you know I do still have chronic symptoms. I do still have you know chronic pain, uh, migraines particularly, which are part of long COVID for me. So, you know, although I walk around and if you met me, you probably wouldn't think that I had long COVID, you know, underneath that, I've learned strategies to to cope with and to move through some of the symptoms in my day-to-day life. Can you tell me a bit about just how your general life is compared to what it was like when we last spoke? 
when we spoke in 2020, I had barely been out of the house for, um, you know, six months, something like that, since I got ill. Um, I was very restricted in what I could do. Since then, I've recovered to the extent that I have been able to do sort of moderately exertional hikes and stuff like that. Running and full-on aerobic exercise still remain a bit out of reach for now. But, you know, being kind of generally mobile to go for reasonable flat walks is pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, it's um, life is um, a semblance of what it was before. It's still a little bit of a way to go. So at the start of 2020, you were extremely fit. You were a marathon runner. But then with long COVID, you developed gastrointestinal problems, chest pain, confusion, cognition problems, and, and much more. When we last spoke, it was those neurological symptoms, though, that were causing you grief. In fact, you'd just been referred to a neurological clinic. How did that go? Basically, I had an MRI scan of my brain and a load of other sort of cognitive tests. And the, the physical tests, uh, the MRI at least, basically shows nothing. It shows, um, shows a completely well, healthy brain, apparently. Uh, apparently healthy. So, you know, there's a process there of going through the medical kind of system. And um, at least in my case, coming to understand that probably no medical imaging was going to be able to kind of definitively prove something was wrong with me, that uh, find any physical evidence of, uh, of the illness itself. What do you think at this stage is helping or will help with the recovery? Um, for me, I think understanding that there is a whole emerging science uh, and evidence base behind treating kind of pain syndromes and, you know, migraines, IBS, um, certain symptoms that, that I have, how to treat those conditions with, with mind-body um, techniques. Um, and so there is uh, having that kind of grounding in science and understanding that this isn't sort of woo-woo, uh, I think is really important for me to actually take that stuff seriously and have some kind of persistence and patience in, in trying those um, sorts of techniques out. And do you understand what causes your symptoms to vary or do they just come and go as they please? Um, I mean, definitely stress is a huge factor in aggravating the symptoms. And when I say stress, I really mean anything that it sort of is, you know, emotionally difficult or uh, particularly, you know, around having a lot of work, a lot of input coming in when there's sort of any sense of overwhelm or taking too much on, that sort of stuff. Or even just, you know, not taking kind of really basic stuff like getting enough sleep and um, kind of looking after yourself in that way. Um, when we last spoke, you were quite active in the uh, long COVID support groups online. Um, are you still part of these? I haven't been actively involved with any of the support or advocacy groups, probably for about uh, about a year or so, uh, maybe slightly longer now. You know, there was a point in time where I did quite a lot of kind of media appearances, you know, went on BBC News talking about long COVID and radio shows and, and all sorts. And um, I think in the end, I found the experience of having to retell um the story and kind of hear about, um, you know, long COVID, it kind of perpetuated the trauma of the whole experience. And if that becomes kind of a real fundamental part of your identity, I think it can hinder kind of moving through it and moving uh, towards recovering. So yeah, so I, I kind of let go of that for a little while. You've decided to talk to us today. So can you just tell me a little bit about 
how that is. Um, I mean, is it okay for you to talk to us? Or do you feel that having this conversation, while it may be helpful for other people, might not be quite so good for yourself? Um, no, I, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I did think about this actually after you asked me to come on the show again, but I think probably what changed in the intervening period since the last time I spoke about it in public is I feel less like I will be kind of thrown back into being traumatised or feeling frightened in the way that I did when I perhaps might have uh, shared stuff about this in the past. I feel now that I feel stronger and that if I am persistent and patient with what I'm doing and continue to be kind of compassionate to the journey, that eventually in time I will fully recover. And um, yeah, that was why I decided to um, to talk. So, yeah. Well, we're really grateful you have felt able to um, share that with us. And what advice would you give to someone who developed long COVID today? Um, I think in the first instance, quite a lot of people who are technically diagnosed with long COVID will actually recover fairly spontaneously within sort of six to 12 months. If it goes on longer than that, I would say definitely get all of the medical tests that are available and make sure there's nothing that is um, kind of physically, you know, happening physically wrong. And if there isn't, which is really the experience that I had and, and the experience I can speak to mainly, explore a biopsychosocial approach and know that um, certainly in my experience, that really, really benefited me and really helped me on the road to, to where I am now and uh, and continues to. So yeah, stay confident that you can recover and, and be patient, really. Tom, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, you're so welcome. No, it was a pleasure. Natasha, I think that's actually quite an optimistic conversation you had with Tom. Um, I mean, they've not found a specific cause for his symptoms, but he does seem to be recovering. What lessons do you think we should be taking from Tom's story? Well, listening to him, I wasn't surprised that brain fog hadn't shown up in his brain scan. You know, you can get brain fog temporarily related to a number of different conditions that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find on an MRI scan. In fact, menopause or women often complain of it. That doesn't mean that it's not real, just that the test that he was given will not necessarily show sort of physical evidence of what's going on. And the problems also with the kinds of symptoms that Tom was experiencing is that the sort of things that are working are not the sort of things that just come in a bottle and that the doctor can easily prescribe for you. And so that's going to be really good nutrition, rest, regular activity, and just time. And if you have stress or depression, it's going to hamper your recovery. So when Tom talks about what he calls the biopsychosocial approach, what he's referring to is that the biology of his disease will also be influenced by psychological and social factors. And so imagine you're going to get brain frog due to COVID, but while you're ill, you may also lose your job and get depressed and you may not be able to recover so easily. And so all these other factors really play a role in what's going on and how long it takes you to recover. We don't often talk about illness this way. We just tend to talk about the biology. But it sounds to me from what he's saying 
is that these other factors loom quite large in recovery. And that's just not typically what health systems are geared up to help you with. And then one other positive thing is that we are seeing long COVID clinics and recovery programs popping up all over the world. Although typically in many countries, the supply of these services isn't quite keeping up with demand. Okay, Natasha, thank you very much for that. Sounds fascinating and complex. We'll be hearing more about those clinics and what they do in just a moment. But first, a reminder to everyone about what you can actually read if you subscribe to The Economist. Natasha, what have you enjoyed recently in the paper? Well, I really liked the piece about how we learn as we get older and this idea that We have these silent synapses in our brain that allow us to sort of continually acquire information as we get older. So it's giving me hope that I'm not going to, you know, lose all my marbles, perhaps, as I increase in years. You're never going to lose your marbles. You're collecting more marbles, as far as I can get there. (laughs) But it it is heartening to know that we still don't really understand how memory works in the brain. It just keeps changing all the time, which is fascinating, which is why neuroscience is so interesting. Now, you can read that and more by taking out a subscription. There's a great introductory deal available at economist.com slash podcast offer. It might even make a great Christmas present for someone. And we'd love to hear from you. To help us improve our podcasts, please fill in a short questionnaire on what you'd like to hear more of. Just go to economist.com slash Babbage survey. There's a link in the show notes for this episode. Thank you very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today, we're investigating the possible causes and potential treatments for long COVID. To find out more, our producer Jason Hoskin visited a pioneering long COVID treatment facility in London. Hidden inside University College London Hospital is the Long COVID Clinic. So, um... Thanks for coming into clinic today. Um, I know this has been a really long journey for you, hasn't it, with this long COVID illness, you know, really struggling with it since 2020. When I visited, a patient called Megan Willis was having a checkup with the team's clinical lead, Melissa Heitman. I'm in a much better place than I was, so there is hope and it is much better. The muscle aches and the fatigue is the main thing that has stuck. So the heart palpitations have finally stopped, which is really positive. Yeah. And what's been most useful for you in terms of getting better control of those symptoms and being able to do a bit more? Is, is it pacing or is there anything yeah. else that you've tried? Pacing is key. Yeah. So uh, limiting socialising as well. The mental struggle really impacts the fatigue physically. Yeah. Um, being a teacher, Obviously, the 
emotional and physical side is really full on all day so that takes it out of me so most nights I go to bed about eight and I have to get about 15 hours sleep really um, to function Um, the sleep is the key thing for everything Megan is a 34 year old dance teacher and she thinks that she first caught Covid before schools closed in March 2020 I basically had a horrendous cough in March 2020 uh, powered through and worked through it and then I lost my sense of smell since March 2020. In October 2020, I was extremely breathless, really poorly, um, and I couldn't really walk around. And since then, my breathing has basically been disformed, really. Um, I powered through for about a year. And then after that year, I came here and got diagnosed with a breathing disorder. The Long Covid clinic at University College London Hospital was the very first to be set up in Britain. Consultant Melissa Heitman and her team bring together many specialities to treat the different symptoms that Long Covid can cause. It's been a a very intense journey, I think, for clinicians across the country in learning how to manage this new condition, uh, Long Covid. Our service started in May 2020, so it's been two and a half years now. I think it's been an opportunity actually to bring clinicians together in a new way actually to deal with this complex illness. And so, you know, perhaps one of the only good things about long COVID has been the innovation we've achieved um, in developing new services and making sure that they have the right elements in them to support individuals trying to manage their physical health, their mental health. Melissa's long COVID clinic started as a van outside of the hospital. Now patients are referred to the team by their GPs or family doctors. In our clinic, 80% of people experience fatigue, which is not just tiredness, that's a disabling tiredness, which really impacts on their ability to function and makes them feel unwell. Um, Breathlessness is also a big problem, and many of our patients have an impact on the pattern of breathing. It may not be that the lungs are are damaged by COVID. In fact, most people that we see, there hasn't been any damage to the way the lungs are working, but breathlessness is still an important feature. And then dizziness and palpitations, I would say, is also very common with long COVID. And there seems to be some impact on the regulation of our autonomic nervous system. So the involuntary nervous system, you know, the way our heart rate and blood pressure responses are kept stable. And we do know something about what are the risk factors If you have other health problems, either physical or mental, you have an increased risk of long COVID and that's really interesting to to understand. What have you noticed in terms of those risk factors? So most important risk factor seems to be your gender. So long COVID is more common in in women and is more common in middle age. So the 35 to 49 year old age bracket, which is interesting, you know, that it's not associated with older age. The other risk factors relate to having other health conditions, you know, such as diabetes or high blood pressure or a previous diagnosis of a mental health problem such as depression or anxiety. Now, of course, this is a physical disease. This is not a psychological illness, uh, if that makes sense. I think that's just important to say. And then when patients attend the clinic, how do you decide which treatment options might be best for them, what tests do you do, take me through the process. 
Yeah, so we have developed an assessment in the clinic, which is a, a joint process between our therapy team and the doctors who work in the clinic. Um, that includes looking at the questionnaire they've done before, so we understand how the symptoms are affecting them, how poorly they are, and then they have a, a brief exercise test. If we're worried about the breathlessness or we're not happy with their oxygen levels when they're doing the exercise test, we'll look at their lung function and we'll look at a scan of their lungs. If we see changes on an ECG of their heart or in blood tests looking at the heart, we'll do other tests on the heart. And we look at measures of their blood pressure and their heart rate when they're lying and standing, trying to define the different elements of their long COVID illness and then working out the management plan for those separate elements. Management plans are mostly focused around rehabilitation strategies for managing fatigue, therapy for the breathing pattern, input for managing pain. There's a small role for medicines in managing some symptoms in some people, but overall it's very much about the therapy approach. And then we work with a community post-COVID or long-COVID rehab team who continue that support close to the person's home. For Megan, those tests highlighted the realities of her condition. So I came in here for an appointment. When I was here, they made me do a really simple test. And I remember it because it's quite traumatising for me. And I had to stand up, sit down as quick as I possibly could in a minute. And I was just in absolute agony. Couldn't do it. Was sobbing, embarrassingly sobbing. Uh, for someone super fit, this is what I've been discussing the whole time, is my fitness level was quite elite. So to do something so basic was mortifying, really. I couldn't do it at all. And the doctor here just said, if you go back to work tomorrow, in probably a week and a half, you're going to be put in a wheelchair. As a teacher, I was just like, it's fine, I can just power through. And she was like, absolutely not, you have to get signed off. Um, and then that's when I started to take it a bit seriously. Yeah, that's quite something to be told. Did you try any medications for your symptoms? I've tried a lot. I went on to antidepressants for a little while because it's just so confusing. But I've changed my whole diet, so I'm gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, depressingly, uh, caffeine-free. As a teacher, that's extremely hard to be caffeine-free. And I am on probiotics to make sure my gut is super healthy. And I'm all also on like a multivitamin relentlessly. And do you think that's helped? Has your condition improved? Yeah, massively. I tried reflexology, I tried acupuncture, but the diet was the main push. Even though my diet was very healthy beforehand, just cutting out some triggers that I think are working. The sugar and the caffeine is the major trigger. If I have maybe, I treat myself to a fizzy drink like once every two weeks, there's an impact for two days, just a tiny little can. So yeah, you can notice the difference. While treating patients in a very personalised way is Melissa's focus, she's also working with University College London, which is the hospital's partner university, to figure out what the underlying mechanisms could be that are causing the illness. There has been research going on to look at the different mechanisms, and that research is quite challenging because long COVID isn't just one thing. So we suspect there's a number of different processes going on in individuals. At the moment, there's some compelling theories, hypotheses, um, and some interesting initial studies, but a, a lot more work is, is needed to unpick it. 
I think it's clear that patients have an impact on the way their bodies use energy and we're very interested in the impact on their mitochondrial function therefore which are the little units which are in our cells that help us use energy. The theory here is that the coronavirus could cause disruptions to mitochondria which could be responsible for symptoms like fatigue, sleep problems and muscle pain. This is a suspected mechanism in chronic fatigue syndrome, which is another debilitating condition with an unknown cause. A few studies have found that some long COVID patients have a lower than average ability to break down fats to produce energy and to get oxygen to the cells that need it fast enough, even during low-intensity exercise. Those findings could suggest a defect in mitochondrial function. But knowing whether that's a cause or a consequence of the illness is very difficult to know. And then there's autoimmunity, where your immune system reacts to something that COVID has triggered. In autoimmune conditions, autoantibodies mistakenly attack normal cells, thinking they're foreign or dangerous. So with long COVID, it may be that the coronavirus damages some tissue and the destroyed cells become targets for antibodies. Or another theory is that a COVID-19 infection unlocks a dormant autoimmune disease that hasn't been detected before. Some studies have defined autoimmune abnormalities in the illness and yet others have not. There are other immune-related theories too. When fighting the coronavirus, the body's immune system launches an inflammatory response, which is supposed to fight the infection and help our bodies heal. But sometimes the immune system can overreact, A severe inflammation of the lungs, for example, can cause breathing problems and patients might need to be put on a ventilator. In long COVID patients, perhaps the COVID-19 infection triggered long-lasting inflammation, damaging organ systems. Understanding possible mechanisms like that is the focus of Melissa's clinical study called Stimulate ICP, which trials different treatment options and drugs. One of those is an anti-inflammatory drug called colchicine. Colchicine is being studied because this was used in some individuals who had heart inflammation after a COVID infection. And we observed in some people it seemed to lead to wider benefits in fatigue and recovery. It has a broad effect on inflammatory processes in the body. Um, It's used more normally in an illness called gout. And so this is, you know, another area of interest, whether an anti-inflammatory approach is useful. One theory for what could be responsible for this chronic inflammation is that the body hasn't fully cleared the coronavirus. Perhaps some viral particles have remained hidden in organs like the gut. So the virus isn't causing acute COVID-19 symptoms, but it may still be having an impact. The viral persistence theory is quite compelling, isn't it, if you've got an ongoing illness that that maybe there's little bits of virus lingering around and, and they have found molecular evidence of that in some body organs, particularly the gut. I think some of the questions have been about, well, are the virus particles that hang around viable? I think most often not. It's not that there's ongoing living infection. Alternatively, some dormant pathogens in the body might have been reactivated. More than 90% of people worldwide are infected with the Epstein-Barr virus, which is most famous for causing glandular fever, or mono. For many people, the virus lies dormant in their bodies for the rest of their lives. But if it were reactivated, the theory goes, that could trigger long COVID symptoms. Many people listening will have heard of some of these theories about abnormal clotting behaviour. I think it's certainly the case that we have seen some features of abnormal 
clotting markers in the blood of people with long COVID. That's one of the most disputed theories for long COVID. The idea here is that tiny blood clots or microclots restrict the flow of blood to organs and damage the walls of blood vessels. That could then drive the long COVID symptoms. The theory has become so popular that hashtag team clots has even become a thing on Twitter. Melissa cautioned against getting too carried away, though. How that relates to being a cause of their symptoms is much less clear, and we don't see actual clots very often in our patients at all. I think the real challenge for these studies looking at the mechanisms is that the patient group are quite mixed. And so there's different mechanisms probably at play in different people. Research into these mechanisms will continue. Some theories will probably disappear. New theories may emerge. Melissa and her team will continue to identify which drugs could be useful in treating long COVID patients. But for now, she's spurred on by the fact that patients are getting better. I would say two-thirds of people we see are getting better steadily with time, and sometimes that's quite quick and sometimes it's quite slow. For patients like Megan, it's about adapting to a new normal as her recovery continues. I am back at work now. It's still quite limited. So as a dance teacher, all of the choreography has been filmed and I teach the lesson through the video. So I'm hoping one time, like soon, in the next year, I can hopefully perform again and dance again. And in terms of the treatment that you're getting, what's your hope for the future? My hope for the future is that I can inhale in my nose without... Uh, restriction to smell would be a delight again if I'm honest but the most important thing is getting upstairs a lot of people are struggling just to get upstairs and just to get over the fatigue the fatigue is pretty life-changing you have to restrict your whole life really I'm joined again by Natasha Loder the Economist's health policy editor Natasha, Jason mentioned the four mechanisms for long COVID that are under investigation right now. So that's an inflammatory response, an autoimmune type response, uh, some sort of theory about viral persistence, and also then microclots. Now, the real answer could be any one of these, some of these, all of them. Um, Why is getting to the bottom of it so important, do you think? Well, if we're going to find a treatment or a cure for long COVID, then we have to know what the disease is. And if you just take a basket of patients that all have some different underlying disease and you have some fabulously well-researched drug that is going to target one mechanism and there are lots of different patients there, you may find your drug fails in a trial, even though it's, you know, very much helping a small subset of patients who actually have the molecular fault that you're targeting. So it's actually really critical that we kind of split up long COVID patients into sort of coherent groups that have conditions that have an underlying biological similarity. And that's really where we're, you know, needing to head. And so obviously if you have a problem with your inflammatory response, then maybe going on anti-inflammatory drugs are going to help. If you have a persistent virus, well, then you may perhaps want antivirals. If there's microclotting, then maybe it's anticoagulants and so on. And then if the mechanism is something like the mitochondria going wrong, 
which is something that Melissa Heitman said she was particularly interested in, then obviously researchers can hook up those patients with ongoing research into treatments for mitochondrial disorders, which is something that's being looked into at the moment. So that makes a lot of sense, but it's also important for the patients themselves too, isn't it? Yes. I mean, if you're suffering from any kind of disease, what's really important to you is as much knowledge and understanding of what's going on in your body. And at the very least, understanding what's going on is going to sort of reassure you that you're not imagining your symptoms, which is an important part of your recovery, I think. And, you know, many patients have had to face through the pandemic this idea that their symptoms were sort of something that were imagined. So having a mechanism is going to be really important at a number of levels. And then beyond that, understanding these molecular pathways means that you can perhaps create some kind of test or look for a biomarker that will help people to know what form of long COVID they have. I mean, we're still not anywhere near there yet, but that's what we need to aim towards is to allow patients to have a much more specific diagnosis, perhaps even with a prognosis as well, that will explain how long they're likely to take to recover, what treatment options they have and that sort of thing. Natasha, a lot of the descriptions of long COVID over the years have sort of mentioned that it's very similar to other post-viral syndromes, you know, these conditions where for a long time after infection, people have all sorts of problems that are kind of nondescript or there's a whole range of them. And I just wonder, is long COVID going to be classed amongst those post-viral syndromes? I mean, what do we know about these types of conditions that perhaps we've ignored in the past, and which hopefully this attention on long COVID might elucidate? Well, this is a fascinating question, and it's almost certain that some of the long COVID patients are having some sort of post-viral syndrome. And these post-viral syndromes can come, you know, even from mild or innocuous infections. They don't occur necessarily because you've had something terrible like COVID. And in fact, we see that with some long COVID patients, they have a particularly mild case of COVID, but then they have this ongoing, very, very long post-viral syndrome with the very typical symptom, which is a sort of post-exertional malaise. And for years, we've paid insufficient attention to these post-viral syndromes. And in fact, for a long time, healthcare systems and doctors have actually had this sort of assumption that a lot of it was in the patient's minds. They were malingerers or stuff like that. And the sort of, you know, standard advice for getting well from some kind of virus would be to sort of take care of yourself, get regular exercise and stuff like that. But this sort of um, one symptom that you get with these post-viral syndromes is this post-exertional malaise. In other words, that you can slightly overdo the activity you're trying to do. And then, you know, your recovery is really set back. Now, it's not quite yet sort of moved out of the realm of medical mystery, if you like, and into something that we really do understand. But I would say that this is a very active area of research now. And in fact, I think people who have had chronic fatigue syndrome look at what's happened with COVID and feel kind of optimistic that more attention now, scientific attention, more clinical attention is going to be paid to you know, how to understand and uh, resolve this condition. Natasha, I'm sure we'll be talking about this more in the future. Thank you very much for joining me. 
You're welcome, Alok. Thank you. Thanks also to Tom State, Melissa Heitman, Megan Willis, and Florence Mutesva. Please don't forget to tell us what you think of the show by completing our listener survey at economist.com slash Babbage survey. It's a great way to influence what we do. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.